Welcome to the Denver Snuffer Podcast. In this episode, Denver discusses the events that culminated in the act of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ sacrificing his life for us. I had just turned 12 at the start of the month. And um, three out of four of my grandparents had died before I was born. The only living grandparent that I had uh, when I was born was still around when I was 12. And uh, she wouldn't die for many years. Um, I had not seen or heard of anyone uh, in my family or in my immediate circle of friends who died. Um, The only real death that had intruded into my awareness was uh, President John Kennedy. And... um, that seemed fabulously theatrical, distant, and more like theater than, than reality. But in, um, in August of 1965, we moved from elementary schools to the junior high school. There were uh, East Elementary where I went to school, and there was North Elementary, and there was West Elementary. And there were kids in the uh, town and the surrounding area that you never met because if they didn't go to your uh, elementary school, you wouldn't cross their paths. But when they combined into the the junior high school, uh, kids from all over came. And there was one kid in particular that I became pretty good friends with in fairly short order. Among other things, we shared a study hall and he was he was an absolute cut up. He was capable of extraordinarily effective mischief. He knew how to make a pencil stick to the ceiling of the study hall. And he knew how to time things when the teacher's back was turned. And he and I became really quite good friends. For as short a time period as we had from August till October, I think I liked him more than anyone else that uh, was in my immediate circle of friends. And on um, Friday, September 29th, all the buses lined up. This kid lived way out of town in a little, little place called Bruno, was bussed in from Bruno, so he had a long bus ride to get home. And um, as he was getting ready to get on the buses, I was hanging out with them until until the buses were to depart. Uh, My last words to him, which were intended to be funny, was don't go and get yourself killed this weekend. And so my buddy Waldo, Waldo Shetler, got on the bus and took off. On Saturday, he was killed. And on Monday, we heard the story that down in Bruno, um, he was riding his bike and a hay truck hit him and killed him. 
that was the first time that death uh, entered into my consciousness. And uh, I don't recall at that moment being as sad as I was shocked, surprised, troubled, trying to figure out what this new reality meant. Um, but because Waldo Shetler was the first person in my life who died, the first person of any proximity, I've thought about him uh, every time death gets close again. I've known a few people who um, were resigned to dying. They were in hospice. They had a terminal illness. They had a terminal problem that they knew they were not going to uh, survive. And I've, I've told quite a number of people in that position, hey, when you get to the other side, will you let Waldo Shetler know his buddy Denver still remembers him and thinks about him and someday I'll come, I'll come look him up personally, but you tell him I said hello. So I don't know how many messages Waldo's received over the years since he died. He was about seven months older than me and he turned 12 much earlier in the school. Well, actually he turned 12 before the school year began, but he's, he's buried in Bruno at the Bruno Cemetery. And I've never made it back there to visit the grave of uh, Waldo, but I think I'd like to do that because what he represents in, in my consciousness is the introduction of death into, into this life, awareness of it at a, at a personal level. Well, Easter's coming up on Sunday, the 17th of this month. And when, um, when Steve asked us to talk, uh, one of the things that um, came first in the conversation was, we ought, to, we ought to talk about Easter, say something about Easter so that it doesn't come and go without notice. Um, there's a passage, it's early in the Book of Mormon, in our scriptures, it's 2 Nephi chapter 11, verse 8, where um, recording about their religion and how they practiced it, they write, we talk of Christ, we rejoice in Christ, we preach of Christ, we prophesy of Christ and we write according to our prophecies that our children may know to what source they may look for the remission of their sins. You know, <clears throat> if you're talking and you're rejoicing and you're preaching and you're prophesying, for those who are living, the remission of sins is the, is the great thing that we can experience and long to have and want to um, receive and so. But in the bigger picture, 
it's the resurrection on Easter morning that is the, the great triumph because it breaks that, that enemy that, that God introduced at the time of the fall that will ultimately cost every one of us our lives. John's prophecy about the, um, the judgment and, and the end of times when we finally get down to the, to the very end reflects this. He, he writes this in Revelation chapter 8, verse 8. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death. Neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. Wipe away all the tears from their eyes. There shall be no more death. I mean, death has taken quite a number of people. In fact, of late, it's taken a number of people that I, I know and have been friends with, and I'm sorry to see them part. And the first great thing that gets wiped away is death. And then our sorrows and our crying and our pain. But that, that loss of life, that, that ending that cuts off your association for a temporary time, um, always leaves us, I think, in a position of thinking back about losses and of our own death, because it's inevitable, it's coming, it's unavoidable. And in some respects, depending upon the condition that you wind up in, it's a release and a welcome one at that. Well, Christ's accomplishment, his great achievement began in Gethsemane and culminated with the resurrection. What I find interesting is that when the Lord has taken the time to, um, to talk about his experience, What he talks about is not the experience on the cross. And, and he doesn't talk about the um, he doesn't talk about the crucifixion. When um, he spoke in modern revelation about uh, what it was that he had accomplished, um, the place where he goes to is Gethsemane. In uh, the TNC, uh, TNC 1, it's the Joseph Smith History, in uh, Joseph Smith History 17 um, at uh, paragraph 5, he says, um, repent. Least I smite you by the rod of my mouth and by my wrath and by my anger that your sufferings be sore. What I find interesting is that the way in which he's going to smite us 
he defines as by the rod of my mouth, meaning that the words he speak are what will cause us this pain and this suffering. Your sufferings be sore, how sore you know not, how exquisite you know not, yea, how hard to bear you know not. For behold, I, God, have suffered these things for all, that they might not suffer if they would repent. But if they would not repent, they must suffer even as I, which suffering caused myself, even God, the greatest of all, to tremble because of pain and to bleed at every pore and to suffer both body and spirit, and would that I might not drink the bitter cup and shrink. Nevertheless, glory be to the Father, and I partook, and finished my preparations unto the children of men. Wherefore, I command you again to repent, lest I humble you by my almighty power, and that you confess your sins, lest your suffering, lest you suffer these punishments of which I have spoken which in the smallest, yea, even in the least degree, you've tasted at the time I withdrew my spirit. See, the place in which he suffered body and spirit and would that he might not drink the bitter cup and shrink was in the garden. And so he doesn't, he doesn't mention the crucifixion. He, he focuses upon the um, the suffering that went on in Gethsemane, which also was covered yet again in the um, in the revelations that have come in this um, in this continuance of the restoration, and that's in in TNC section one sixty one. which starts out describing a view of the Lord kneeling in prayer in a dark place. The air was heavy and overcast with shadow. Man beheld the Lord praying in Gethsemane on the night of his betrayal and before his crucifixion. All the Lord had previously done in his mortal ministry by healing the sick, raising the dead, giving sight to the blind, restoring hearing to the deaf, curing the leper and ministering relief to others as he taught, was but a prelude to what the Lord was now to do in this dark, oppressive night. And then it describes how the Lord in prayer began vicariously suffering, and he goes through these waves of torment, which um, was the Lord kneeling in prayer, exposed to the guilt, the shame, the recriminations, the the difficulties, the the pains of both offending God and your fellow man and being offended by your fellow man and the torment of the mind and the spirit and the soul in trying to overcome and reconcile yourself back into the presence of God the Father, shedding all of what you feel when you are smitten by the rod of the mouth of that pure being who is God the Father 
and the recognition that you are you're out of you're out of adjustment you're out of sync with um with the almighty you are you are not uh good and pure and holy and you are in the presence of a good and a just and a holy being the um the gospel reflects that an angel came strengthening him um which is not altogether an accurate description of what went on he the father's presence never left the son throughout all his sufferings and indeed, part of the son's sufferings was caused by the necessity to reconcile peacefully his experience of this unclean, unworthy state with the feelings of, of, of shame and guilt that are caused by not being reconciled with God, and then overcoming that and being able to reconcile himself again with the Father and coming to a place of peace and harmony and at oneness with the Father that this, this awful experience had disrupted. It, it shattered the um, it, it shattered the, the, the harmony that existed between the Father and the Son that had existed throughout his entire ministry, and it put the son into the same position as the worst of the sinners who had jarringly disassociated themselves unworthily with the father. And now here he is feeling all of that, but being in the presence of the father as if he were advanced to the moment of the final judgment and coming before the bar of a perfect and pure God, but doing so unprepared, unworthy, unreconciled, unrepentant, and filled with guilt and shame. And all of that was put upon him so that he could um, reconcile himself to the Father, reconcile himself and overcome the feelings of guilt and remorse of sin. Um, the Lord is ever willing to forgive us. But once we are forgiven, then the obligation is imposed upon us to forsake our sins and then go on as worthy as we would be had we not sinned in the first place. We have to, we have to leave that behind us. He, he readily forgives. But once forgiven, we're supposed to not only confess, but to forsake our sins. And the forsaking of the sin and the leaving of the temptation behind becomes a, a, an enormous challenge for us. And it was the challenge that he faced in Gethsemane. And it's the place he goes to now that he's gotten through the entirety of this of this. Um, atonement, and he's worked it all through. He doesn't go to the cross. He doesn't go to somewhere else. He goes to this moment, this profound, jarring disassociation that existed between him and the Father that he had to find a way to overcome and to reconcile in order to be once again 
in harmony with him. And he facilitates our ability to do exactly the same thing by taking upon him vicariously through that suffering, through that price that he paid, the ownership of forgiveness for everything so that he can forgive. But forgiving is the limit of what he can do. He can't make us better. He finished his preparations. And then having finished his preparations, he says, therefore, I command you to repent. I I don't want you to go through what I went through. I'll forgive you, but I command you, repent. Confess them, forsake them, leave them behind you, and become something bigger, better, more reconciled to God through the love that you ought to have in your heart for the fact that um, he has been willing to re-accept you. He has been willing to comfort you, take you in, and embrace you as a member of, of his family, able to stand clean before him because you've, you've abandoned what, what it was that, that separated you. Um, if you read through that section 161 material, which uh, I'm not going to do, I've done it just recently, reading an excerpt in one of the, um, one of the conferences recently, Um, you'll find that the Lord overcame the separation that that drove him away from the presence of the Father because of guilt and because of shame, because of of this this intense feeling of, of unworthy betrayal. He overcomes that through love. He overcomes that through um, finding his way back to the um, the harmony that um, that preceded all of this. So I'm not going to read 161 any further, but I would I would commend it to you. What I find interesting is that um, we have discussions that uh, brush up against what the Lord had done. In, um, in Alma and in Isaiah and uh, other places that talk about how uh, he goes through what he went through in order to uh, understand and gain the knowledge necessary in order to succor us and to reconcile us. So he's not, he's not coming to um, minister as the forgiving savior ignorant of what it takes in order to overcome sin, he, he comes fully understanding the, uh, the nature of what it is that, that makes us recoil from the presence of God. Uh, he gets it. He's been there. He's been through that. And when he looks upon us, he can look upon us with compassion and understanding because by his knowledge, he can justify us by leading us from this this state of disharmony and this state of opposition, shame and guilt back into a state of cleanliness and um, the feeling of of reconciliation with God. So 
as we approach the Easter season, it all begins after he has um, uh, implemented the uh, sacrament and he's gone out to Gethsemane and he's gone through this experience. He then gets arrested in the garden and um, the, the incident gets described perhaps most interestingly and most revealingly in uh, John's account. Um, they come, they're armed, they have spears, they have, they have their armed people ready to uh, inflict violence should the necessity present itself. And uh, Christ asks them whom they seek, and they they tell him that they're looking for this this Jesus, and he says, "I am He." And the account is that they they stumbled backwards and fell down. It's it's almost a um, a comic moment in the uh, in the account because here you have a personage who is um, unarmed and subject to arrest and people with both the authority to come in and take and arrest him and the arms with which to accomplish it, even if he should oppose him. And he identifies himself as the one they come. I am he. And uh, they step back on one another's feet and trip and fall backwards. That little moment right there tells you something. Our Lord, after having gone through what he went, engaged in what he, he, he suffered, was so intimidating a presence that it made the men who came to arrest him cower in his presence. They were physically intimidated by what it was that his countenance portrayed. That, that countenance would be one of the reasons why once they subdued him, um, they took some delight in abusing him. It's, it really harkens back um, to an analogous earlier um, circumstance when there was a, a messianic, semi-messianic figure in the form of Samson who the Philistines could never defeat. Uh, he, he crushed them, he killed them, he, he subjected them, he defeated them, uh, he alone, I mean, Heaps upon heaps with the jawbone of an ass, I've killed a thousand. He, he was able to overcome them. But when they finally got him to break the last thread of the covenant that he had been strengthened by, and not until he had broken the last thread of the Nazarite covenant by allowing the um, secret out and the hair to be cut, and they took him prisoner, was he finally defeated? And what did they do? I mean, they took great delight in, in doing to this, this clearly superior uh, individual the kinds of things that humiliate them to make them feel better about the, the crushing defeats he had administered 
to them over time. They they blinded him. Uh, they they tied him to a millstone. They drove him like a dumb ass. Uh, they mocked him. They they spit at him. They they did all they could, but they made the mistake of allowing the hair to grow out. And for him, in his penitent state, to draw upon the covenantal status that had put him in that position at the beginning, and one of his last acts was then to bring down the uh, the temple that they brought him to to mock him by pulling down the main support beams and and crushing him. Well, that 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 vengeance, that fury, that desire to abuse, to take what is clearly the superior and to subject him to the inferior was what, after the surrender, the Lord was put through for um, some period of time. And then, and then he was lashed and then he was presented after having been sufficiently humiliated as one of two candidates for release. But they said, Give us Bar Abbas, the, the other one who claims to be the uh, son of God. Give us Azazel uh, and give us the scapegoat and let's kill the other one. And so once again, the, um, the ceremonies under the law of Moses come back to reflect the reality of the end of what what the Lord was going to be put through. There are prophecies about what he would endure. There are um, descriptions that are given of what he went through and why. But when we finally get to the point that he's about to surrender his life, we get one of the most extensive and remarkable prophecies in all of scripture in the 22nd Psalm, which the Lord, after all he had been through while still alive, began to sing while he was on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My God, hear the words of my roaring. You are far from helping me, oh my God. I cry in the daytime, but you answer not. And in the night season, am I not silent? But you are holy that inhabit the heavens. You are worthy of the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted, and you did deliver them. They cried unto you and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not confounded. But I am a worm and loved of no man, a reproach of man, and despised of the people. All they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip, they shake the head, saying, he trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him, let him deliver him, seeing that he delighted in him. But you are he that took me out of the womb. You did make me hope. When I was upon my mother's breasts, I was cast upon you from the womb. You were my God from my mother's breasts. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. They gaped upon me with their mouths like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. 
My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my inward parts. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue cleaves to my jaws, and you have brought me into the dust of death. For dogs have compassed me. The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I may tally all my bones. They look and stare upon me. They part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. Be not far from me, O Lord. O my strength, hasten to help me. Deliver my soul from the sword. I will declare your name unto the brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will I praise you. You that fear the Lord, praise him. All you, the seed of Jacob, glorify him and fear him. All you, the seed of Israel. For he has not departed nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. Neither has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried unto him, he heard. My praise shall be of you in the great congregation. I will pay my vows before them that fear him. And so on. This is the hymn that the Lord went to in the final moments of the um, of the last breaths that he was able to take uh, on the cross. And then having achieved exactly what he intended to achieve and reaffirming that what he was going through was indeed exactly what needed to be accomplished in order to fulfill the purposes of God. He then announced with a loud voice, some of the gospel writers say he shouted with a loud voice and then gave up the ghost. But one of the gospel writers tells us what it was he shouted and it was, it is finished, which was a shout of triumph not of defeat. And so he, he sings a psalm that, that tells everyone exactly what is going on is what the Messiah was expected to go through. And then he shouts out a triumph call and he gives up the ghost. Those that were there on that day looking upon the scene First of all, if you understood the words of the psalm, if you memorized the, 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 the words of the hymn, which most Jews would have done, would know that, that he was confronting their rejection of him as a Messiah right up to the very end. And those that heard him shout out the victory and give up the ghost would have undoubtedly wondered, how is it, <laughs> how, how is this um, possible? How was that a triumph? What, what was it that, that he was achieving in the moment that, that, that he ends the life here and moves on to whatever it is that comes next? Some of them thinking that is nothing and some of them thinking that is Elisha Fields, and some of them thinking that's just a slumber that will await later resurrection. But whatever was, the Lord 
in the minds of those that heard was announcing his triumph that he was moving on there. Now we have we have other news from other sources, including Peter's um, epistles, where he talks about the Lord then going into the world of spirits to declare a message um, among the dead about the uh, possibility now of changing their lot and improving their condition. And he spent, as they reconcile uh, time according to the Jews in that day, three days and three nights in the, uh, in the tomb. And then on the first day of the week, as it was then reckoned, um, it was actually the seventh day, but we were off by a day ever since the fall of Adam because the day of rest was disrupted by the fall. But on the first day of the week, according to what, what they reckoned at that point, the actual intended day of rest, according to the creation that was disrupted by the fall, the Lord came forth out of the tomb and uh, was resurrected while it was still dark. We have an account of that also in um, that section 161 about how once he had come out of the, um, of the grave, When I saw his resurrection, I was surprised to see it was still dark. When Mary realized it was Jesus, she embraced him joyfully. She did not timidly reach out her hand, but she readily greeted him with open arms, and he in turn embraced her. It is difficult to describe what I saw of the incident, apart from saying, the Lord was triumphant, exultant, overjoyed at his return from the grave. She shared his joy. I was shown the scene and do not have words to adequately communicate how complete the feelings of joy and gratitude were, which were felt by our Lord on that morning. As dark and terrible were the sufferings through which he passed, the magnitude of which is impossible for man to put into words. These feelings of triumph were, on the other hand, of equal magnitude in their joy and gratitude. I do not think it possible for a mortal to feel a fullness of either. And having felt some of what he shares with his witnesses, I know words are inadequate to capture his feelings on the morning of his resurrection. He had the deep satisfaction of having accomplished the most difficult assignment given by the father, knowing it was a benefit to all of his father's children. And it had been done perfectly. Mary and Christ embraced. There was nothing timid about the warm encounter she had with him. Then he said to her, hold me not, because he had to ascend, return and report to his father. 
and so on. We really don't get Easter and understand what Easter represents until we have begun in Gethsemane and ended at the resurrection and the joy that was experienced there. It's, it's as if the, the atonement takes the, 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 the scale of negativity and the scale of positivity and it drives the needle as far down as it is possible to drive the needle down to one extremity at the end of the worst, most awful, most dreadful possibility that exists in the entire universe, and then takes that same needle and drives it on the scale upward to the point that it exceeds joy so great that when men are exposed to a little of it, they are overcome and, and their physical body faints from the exaltation of what it was that the Lord experienced. Easter represents all of that. Easter represents the great and the dreadful, the magnificent and the awful, the most terrible, the most wonderful. It represents it all. And our Lord, after having gone through all of that, continues to bear testimony to us in the restoration scriptures to say, here's now what I've done. I've accomplished all my preparations and I've made it possible now for you. Um, I command you to repent. Repent, lest I smite you by the rod of my mouth and by my wrath and by my anger and your sufferings be sore. How sore you know not, how exquisite you know not, yea, how hard to bear you know not. For behold, I, God, have suffered these things for all that they might not suffer if they would repent. But if they would not repent, they must suffer even as I. Which suffering caused myself, even God, the greatest of all, to tremble because of pain, to bleed at every pore, and to suffer both body and spirit. And would that I might not drink the bitter cup and shrink. Nevertheless, glory be to the Father. And I partook and finished my preparations unto the children of men. That's all he could do. That's all he has done. That's the great accomplishment that he has obtained for us. He finished his preparations unto the children of men. It's all been prepared. So now that it's all been prepared, and he's told us, I've given you, it's, it's all ready to go. Wherefore, now as a result of this preparation, as a consequence of everything I just told you, wherefore, I command you again to repent. Least I humble you by my almighty power. And that you confess your sins. Least you suffer these punishments of which I have spoken. See, he 
wants us to be freed from the valley of the shadow of death through which we will pass. And he promises us that no matter how bitter death may be, he's going to wipe away every tear and he's going to defeat the grave. But that can't make us individually worthy. The only way that we can become individually worthy is if we do as he instructs us to do, acknowledge our own many shortcomings, and then turn around to face God and leave behind us all of the things that are unworthy, unacceptable, disobedient, all of our jarrings, all of our contentions, all of our pride, all of our efforts to raise ourselves at the expense of others, all of our ambition, our desire for control and compulsion and dominion, our desire to be profiting at the expense of others. In many respects, it requires Zion for us to fully repent. And yet, Zion requires us to be something very different than what we are because we don't treat one another the way that equality imposes upon us. We do cheer against one another and, and look to get ahead and, and then to leave others behind. We do, we do falsely assume ourselves to be something bigger and greater and more holy than we are. When in fact, if we are serviceable to the Lord and we're able to move something along on his errand, and it turns out to be something great, that isn't us. We, we, don't, we don't have anything of which to boast. None of us ever have, none of us ever will, no matter how great a thing the Lord may cause to happen through the service that he asks you to provide. In the end, you probably don't do as good a job of doing what he's commanded as he could do it himself. And yet, if it's serviceable and it works and it accomplishes something good, then the gratitude and the praise and the rejoicing of all that belongs to God, not to us. I think we've accomplished many, many remarkable, wonderful things. But that's not us. We've been led along by a merciful, kind, guiding light that has made the task doable by the light that he has provided to us. And we have nothing of which to boast for ourselves. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. The foregoing was recorded on April 3rd, 2022 during a fireside held in conjunction with the upcoming Stand Independent General Conference, scheduled for late September 2022. For information about upcoming Christian Fellowship Conferences, meetings, and events, please visit restorationarchives.com. There you will also find a complete collection of Denver's lectures and papers, which are available free of charge. You can learn more about what God is doing to restore the gospel today at learnofchrist.com. Org. Baptism or rebaptism is available for free at bornofwater.org to everyone who asks 
with no obligation to pay, join, or attend any church, group, or organization. The new Restoration Edition of the Scriptures was canonized in 2017. All three volumes are available online for free at scriptures.info. The covenant mentioned in this podcast is available to review at receivethecovenant.com. If you have questions or ideas for topics that you would like to have covered in this podcast, please submit them for consideration to questions at denversnufferpodcast.com. This podcast is a volunteer effort produced under the direction of Denver Snuffer. We hope you'll share it with everyone interested in learning more about Christ, the coming Zion, and the restoration of authentic Christianity now underway in our time.